97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. Josh Hennig filling in for Mike Gill here on a Tuesday, along with Hunter Brody. Here till 4.30 tonight, Sixers versus Suns here on 97.3 ESPN, where you get to hear Shake Milton, Norvell Pell, and uh, let's see here, Alec Burks, Matisse Thibel, Kyle O'Quinn. They can take on Devin Booker and the Suns. That'll that'll certainly be interesting. Josh Hennigan here with Hunter Brody. The Phillies mailbag right now every Tuesday. We are joined by Frank Close to talk Phillies on a Tuesday at 3 o'clock as Right before Frank jumped on, the Phillies made some moves. We'll get to them now, as well as the mailbag with Frank here on 97.3 ESPN. Frank, how are you doing today? I'm great. Hey, guys. Doing pretty good. So we got to start with the moves. Obviously, a lot of people are screaming and yelling about what we saw last night. Well, the Phillies have made some corresponding moves. Nick Pavetta has been optioned, and in his place, it looks like you have Connor Brogdon and Blake Parker coming to the Phillies' bullpen. Yeah, I, I think this was a move the Phillies had to make. It seems like so far this season, Nick Pavetta, who, by the way, at just this time last week, if you remember, I was saying the Phillies really needed to commit to him to be a bullpen arm and to try to develop him. i got to wonder if there's something between his ears because he is somebody, if he embraced the role, has a ton of talent and could have done it. You know, this might be, might be something they have to do just to tell him to get his act together. I, I can't think of any anything else because certainly last night coming in with a 12-run lead, get three outs, was apparently too much to ask of Nick Pavetta. And so they, they took the bold step of sending him to, to Lehigh Valley, which means he gets to play those taxi squad games uh, at Coca-Cola Park. And, and that's probably humiliating for him, but maybe that actually is something he needs right now because there's a lot of people in this game who think he has a lot of talent, but he's got to get his act together. He's got to show that he can step up and be a major league pitcher. And so far, no matter what role they've given him, he's been unable to do that. And, and last night was probably the last straw. Yeah, at some point, I think, look, you had too many opportunities and you're not doing what you need to do. Now, that brings me down the road of Vince Velasquez because they're kind of tied together. They've been fighting for that fifth spot every single year. Do you think the last straw with Vince Velasquez is coming as well? I think so. I mean, you know, Joe Girardi mentioned yesterday about piggybacking him and Spencer Howard. You know, maybe it's just the idea is that they're going to take Spencer Howard and give him some feeling of he'll be covered if he's – I don't think you need that. You know, you, you call the guy to the big leagues. You know, you don't want your starter to think that there's somebody breathing down his neck ready to come in. Um, but but for me, Velasquez has shown what he is. Uh, he's a guy that throws a lot of pitches. Uh, most of the time he doesn't get knocked around a lot, but he, he walks a lot of guys and, and tries to be too fine with his pitches. I, I mean, Velasquez, I, I understand. I mean, this is, this is what, year five? 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, at some point you're going to have to really see if he, indeed he can be that bullpen arm. And and uh, Hunter, we were talking about this on our podcast, which I encourage everybody to listen to, by the way, um, that you know when the trade happened and the Phillies acquired Velasquez, some scout said this guy could be better than Ken Giles, the guy that the Phillies traded to get Velasquez, and better than Ken Giles from the back end of the bullpen. And the Phillies have never gone that route. You know, he was demoted to the bullpen once 
And next thing you know, there's a bullpen game, and Velasquez is the guy who pitches first. Like, they never, ever really embraced Vince Velasquez as a reliever. And I think the Phillies really need to give – all right, it's one thing if you say for one time you're going to piggyback him and, and Spencer Howard, but if Spencer Howard shows up the next start and gives you six innings, then forget it. Work on Vince Velasquez being a relief arm and make him be a good one. Frank, just following up on that, what, what is the reason why the Phillies seem so insistent on not putting Velasquez in the bullpen, whether it's been Girardi or Kapler before him or people before that? It seems like there's this, is it an obsession? Is it a commitment? Is it is it just naivete? What is the reason why Velasquez is never actually put into that bullpen role? You know, I think this offseason, the, the Phillies really – decided that they needed to add two starting pitchers. And I, and I think that when they got out to the marketplace, they saw how much Zach Wheeler cost, which was more than they expected, and they paid it. They paid the price for Zach Wheeler. But then after that, they're like, okay, well, we're not going to pay the price of whatever else is left, and saw that the, the starting pitching market was a lot softer than they would have liked. So they said to Nick Cavetta, Vince Velasquez, and Ranger Suarez, go compete for this fifth starter job. And in my my opinion, in, in Florida and Clearwater, when, when camp ended suddenly on March 12th, Ranger Suarez was the leading candidate for that job. And so when you end up back in summer camp, I think Nick Pavetta had ruled himself out based on how he pitched. And at that point, what else do you have? So I don't think that this year was the insistence on Vince Velasquez. And in fact, it kind of, I don't want to say bothered me. That might not be the right word, but Velasquez made the comment after his last start that he earned the fifth spot in the rotation. I don't think that he earned the spot in the fifth, uh, the fifth spot in the rotation. I think he was just what was left after Nick Pavetta counted himself out and Ranger Suarez caught COVID. So one of the additions that they called up was Connor Brogdon. He's someone who has intrigued me before in the past. I'm not claiming that he's going to be some shutdown stellar guy, but my question to you is, what what can he be? What what is his ability when it comes to this bullpen? You know, he's somebody that even Joe Girardi had mentioned before, and, and you know, if you remember back to when the the sixty man player pool came out, a lot of people had uh, were, were I don't say had they, they they basically kind of lit up, and the reason why is that he's gotten through three levels of the minor leagues from from A to AAA. He has just a two six one ERA, and he's, he's, he's struck out 106 batters in 76 innings. Um, so, so there's clearly something about him that that the opposing players just can't catch up to. So he's got that little electric arm, and I think you know he's the type of guy that at this point, yeah. I mean, let's face it. You took a chance on Ramon Rosso, who is still with the club, by the way, uh, who kind of needs to put it together at the major league level. But, but you saw with Trevor Kelly, I think he got to the point where he said, well, you know what, Connor Brogdon, let's give him a shot. He's not going to be worse than this. And and even though they might be rushing him just a little bit, I think that there is a ceiling there that could be very, very helpful to this Phillies team uh, th- this season and, and hopefully beyond. Frank, the other move that was made today, there's a whole list of them. You know, They called up Brogdon and Parker, they optioned Pavetta. But the very interesting one to me is, they DFA Nick Williams. Now, if he is officially out of the organization, that means that's the last player, I believe, from the Cole Hamels trade that's gone. So that means, uh, what was it, Alfaro, Nick Williams, uh, Jake Thompson, Jared Eikhoff, 
I know I'm forgetting a couple other guys, but they're all Matt gone Harrison, now, right? He, yeah. yeah. Well, Matt Harrison was never really Matt a Harrison. real part of the trade. Yeah, he was just there to sort of eat the money. But you know what? The Phillies still were able to trade Jorge Alfaro towards JT Realmuto. I don't consider it a total loss. Uh, the Phillies signed JT Realmuto. I think it's a lot better. But uh, I don't think you can mark it off as a total loss if that trade was able to get you JT Realmuto for this part of your 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 uh, in this part of the history of your franchise. Frank, I want to get your opinion on Spencer Howard's debut. I, I thought that. You know, he clearly showed some great signs, that knuckle curve, the slider, and he does have a fastball that's intriguing, but the Braves attacked it early, and there weren't many swing and misses when it comes to that fastball. So, overall, your thoughts on Spencer Howard? I thought overall it was, overall it was encouraging. I mean, if I had to compare him to Velasquez, who pitched forwarding, threw a ton of pitches and gave up one run, I would definitely take Spencer Howard over Vince Velasquez. I think, I think the problem with, with Howard is right now, that he did not get to pitch much. Now, if you remember back to spring training, when I when I was down there, he was sort of off on the backfields. He was doing drills. You know, that, that one picture on 97.3 ESPN.com that you see over and over again <laughs> of spring training that I took, that was of him doing some infield drill on the backfield. So he didn't pitch a lot in the spring because the Phillies were, were trying to hold him back, hoping that he would be able to help the Phillies later in the season. With the shutdown and all, you know, he didn't come to the Phillies right away. Uh, yeah, they, they did pitch him in summer camp. I, I think he's still sort of building up his strength. So that's the one thing I would say about him. He's still kind of on his trajectory upward. I think we're going to see a lot better as we go. And, and, and even though the Phillies are talking about piggybacking Vince Velasquez on him, I really, really hope that Spencer Howard gets to pitch first. Because I think he's somebody who, even if it's, a shorter start next time, again, because he's still kind of adapting and trying to get used to the workload. I can see him, you know, throwing a seven-inning gem, and then you, you, you forget all about Vince Velasquez, and then hopefully he helps you in your bullpen another way. So uh, I, I think big things are ahead for him. Everybody that you talk to just raves about his stuff and raves about his poise. And I thought I thought when he came out in the first inning, he was a little jittery, uh, but they got that under control right away. But you only make your major league debut once, and hopefully even that jittery first inning is out of the way. Frank Close joining us here on the Boardwalk on the Hotline on 97.3 ESPN. Of course, you can follow Frank on Twitter. That's Frank Close with a K, all one word. Frank, the Phillies mailbag is up and I have to admit, my favorite question on this mailbag I want to ask you here, and it's not just Kevin who asked you this question. I feel like it's half of Philly's fandom is asking this question because before last night, it seemed like the Phillies couldn't score a single run at all. People want to know, where's Alec Baum? When are they going to call up Alec Baum? So I'll let you explain the Alec Baum situation. Yeah, so so Alec Bohm is definitely on the Phillies' radar. You know, he's up at the Allentown uh, alternate spring training site or wherever they call it. Uh, he is working at and having those intra-squad games with the rest of the player pool. I think there just hasn't been a sense of urgency to bring him up. And you know, he went, okay, well, they had a few games where they kind of hit a bottom. But you know what? When I look at where the Phillies are struggling, I definitely think that there's some some room to improve there. Uh, you know, Reese Hoskins was a name that that came up and. And Hunter Brody, by the way, you know, just pointed out on our podcast, he's, he's, uh, his exit velocity off his bat has been pretty strong lately. Uh, he's coming around. You know, we, we, we tend to think that, that Reese Hoskins, you know, he's kind of still in that mindset, which is maybe one from the last coaching staff where 
better to take the pitches and and walk a lot. But, you know, we really want to see more power from Reese Hoskins and swinging up more balls that are strikes. I think he can come around, so I'm not looking to bring him up and replace Reese Hoskins right now. And then, then you look at, at where else he could possibly go. Now, Scott Kingery, uh, you could take Gene Segura and put him at second base and put Alec Bohm at third base. But if you do that, is you know, is this really Scott Kingery that we're we're supposed to see? Now, Scott Kingery, he was somebody who did have a battle with COVID, and Scott Kingery missed a lot of summer camp and. He did eventually arrive, and he's playing every day. But is he really totally recovered? I think that's a valid question to ask. Uh, and, and did the, and when I say recovered too, he might be fine from the disease, but he, you know he might be behind on terms of his development and getting his timing right on his bat. So I would like to see Scott Kingery uh, kind of play this out a little bit more. And then if you get beyond the starters, like if you look at who the bench is, so to speak. One of them is going to be Jay Bruce, and Jay Bruce is your DH, so you're not going to get rid of Jay Bruce. Phil Gosselin has been unbelievable so far, and there's absolutely no way to justify removing him from the roster. Neil Walker's been very good. He plays a bunch of positions. He's a switch hitter. They need somebody like him. And then Roman Quinn is the other half of the Adam Hastley platoon, so, so you can't really get rid of him either. So unless you start taking from the bullpen where you might actually need the extra arms right now, there's really no roster spot for Bohm right now that really kind of sticks out and says, well, here's the spot you put Bohm. So I think they're kind of content to just let him continue to develop up at that alternate spring training site. And, you know, if there's an injury, I think absolutely that he's going to be the first person they call, whether it's the infield or the outfield, they'll, they'll find a way to bring him in. But uh, for right now, I think they don't feel that sense of urgency, um, but it could come soon especially as you get later in the season. If Scott Kingery is still struggling a month from now, well, then, then absolutely, you know, you try to make that final push for the playoffs. But, but right now, there's really no, no overwhelming sense of urgency to add to the offense, which if you look at the average numbers, yeah, they've had some downs. They had some ups like the 13-inning, uh, 13-inning, excuse me, 13-run game. Um, but it averages out to a pretty solid offense, and I think that they can – wait and see just a little bit before they go making a roster decision. Frank Close, Phillies Insider for 97.3 ESPN.com. Check out the full mailbag right now at 97.3 ESPN.com. Also, make sure you check out the latest edition of the Powder Blue podcast. Frank, Hunter, Jeff Mosher, all talking about the Phillies and their bullpen and Reese Hoskins and more on the Powder Blue podcast. As all guests, Frank Close appeared via the boardwalk kind of hotline. Frank, Thank you. Great to talk to you guys. Josh Hennig filling in for Mike Gell here on 97.3 ESPN. Sports Bash being brought to you by GMS Law. Make the right call with four convenient locations to serve you. Visit them online at gmslaw.com. We'll talk more Phillies, Sixers. Who's playing tonight? Well, we'll get into that next as well, along with Hunter Birdie. I'm Josh Hennig here on the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN FM, the 97.3 ESPN mobile app. We never stop talking Eagles and NFL. It's football at four. The Sports Bash. Send a text message 609-403-0973. That's 609-403-0973. That's right. ThePlaySugarHouse.com text board is open at 609-403-0973. An hour earlier version edition of Ask Bros and Josh coming up about... 
14 minutes from now, 609-403-0973. Questions are already piling in for the conversation. We'll get to all that. we got to update you on the latest with the Phillies, of course, the Sixers as well. We'll kind of retouch on what Frank was talking about because with Nick Pavetta being optioned along with Nick Williams DFA, Connor Brogdon brought up, uh, Blake Parker brought up. I keep wanting to call him Blake Lively, even though I'm thinking of Ben Lively. I'm really getting all out of whack over here with whose name is whose. Um, Honor, uh, I'll flip it back to you now. Um, so, so Brogdon Parker, are you are you thumbs up, thumbs down, wait and see? How do you feel right now? Well, I'm definitely intrigued. I think it's it's what you needed to do. This pro, this bullpen has been a huge issue, and you had to change something. You need to do something. You can't continue to go down a road that you know is not going to work. But I will add that this team right now, besides the one starting spot with Vince Velasquez, the starting pitching has done a pretty decent job. Aaron Nola, the last two performances, he had 10 strikeouts last night, 12 the outing before. Zach Wheeler has been very stellar. Zach Eflin put together a, a, an outing where it was his first outing, and with because of being put on pause, it was a bit fluky with how long he could actually go, but he showed some intriguing stuff, and Arietta has been such a big juice to this uh, rotation. I didn't expect him to be anything close to what he has given us so far to this point, so couldn't you agree that the starting pitching has actually been pretty decent? The starting pitching is definitely not the problem because between Wheeler, Nola, and Arietta, and even Eflin a little bit, they're getting the job done. This bullpen has just been embarrassing, and it's hard for me to tell whose fault that really is because I feel like Girardi only has who he has to work with down there. So to me, I kind of have to wonder, if you had Brogdon and Parker available, why didn't they just start the season on the roster? Well, that's a great question. I think a lot of people questioned what the hell is this when they saw the first big report from the Phillies mentioning who was going to be on the team. So going into this, when we saw all the names, we saw, okay, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. We didn't know what they were going to bring. So everyone was kind of questioning why these guys right from the jump. I mean, last time I checked, didn't the Phillies get Parker last year because he was the former Twins closer? Like, doesn't that guy have more baseball experience and pedigree than half of these no-names? Yes, he was with the Phillies last year, and there were plenty of guys that they had on the list to maybe make the team when it came to veteran bullpen players, but they didn't want to bring them in, and people questioned, was it due to money? Are they afraid to go over the luxury tax that much where they didn't want to sign someone like Liriano? They didn't want to sign these veteran bullpen players because they didn't want to worry about the money side of things. They'd rather go with cheaper guys that were question marks but go with quantity, and clearly it has backfired. Well, if that's the case, that's the stupidest thing they could have done because maybe they should have managed their money better in the first place instead of being in a pinch where you had to choose between Rosso and Parker and Luriano, who wouldn't have mattered anyway because he decided to opt out of the baseball season anyway about a week after the Phillies cut him. But still, the point is, if you're debating between the luxury tax, not the luxury tax, and you're going to compromise your baseball team because of it, that's not just bad baseball planning. That's bad business acumen. 
Sure, and that's what we're dealing with up top, and that's why I go back and forth every single day with myself. Is this a Matt Klintak problem, or is this a Middleton problem? Can Matt Klintak make the moves that he wants to make, or is he with his hands behind his back because the owner won't let him because he doesn't want to spend money? I don't have the answer. I'm not saying that Matt Klintak's not at fault because he's done a lot of things that are on him as well, but we don't know. We don't know if John Middleton is going up to him saying, you can't spend this much money. So now, what do you do if you're the GM? You can only do what the owner allows you to do. If I could throw another name in here, I think another person who deserves blame is Andy McPhail because it was McPhail that they brought in to like reshape the front office and bring in all these new people. And it's the people that Middleton signed off because McPhail told him Clintac and whoever else would be good at their jobs, and those people are not doing as good at their jobs. I think we got to blame Andy McPhail for some of this mess, too. Sure. The thing is, people don't even know what Andy McPhail does. What's his job? He's what in does Middleton's he do ear. Day? That's what his job is. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure he does. I'm not saying he doesn't have input on the bigger decisions, but I think he does more around the ballpark stuff than the actual baseball moves itself. No, no, he, he's not making, like, the, the day-to-day baseball operation moves. But from what I understand, he has Middleton's ear. And if he gave Middleton bad information or misinformation or, you know, miss, you know, whatever you want to call, miss anything, they missed on a lot of things when it came to people they hired, for example, who can't budget properly to make sure that they don't go into the luxury tax or make sure that you make the right trade to the right moves, the right acquisitions in order to make sure that you can afford to do the right thing to put this team in a position to be successful, not just this year, but in years to come. It just kind of feels like, you know, I mean, it was Clintac and McPhail who hired uh, Kapler before Girardi, so it feels like this entire front office is culpable in the failings of this team. Couldn't agree more. I just question John Middleton because I like relating what's happening with the Phillies to the Sixers a bit because Joshua Harris, to me, isn't someone that I want to be a part of ownership when it comes to any team that I support. But with John Middleton, like, don't you feel the difference when it comes to the winning side of things between those two ownerships? Like, even though John Middleton I'm a little frustrated with because of the luxury tax problem, but you know deep down he truly cares about winning. I don't know if I feel that way with Joshua Harris. So I like the guy in John Middleton because I can sense that he wants to win and he wants to bring home a championship. And it, it just it just bothers me because you do know that he wants to, yet he's afraid to go over the luxury tax. But with Joshua Harris, I, I can't stand that ownership group. It's just interesting to look at the two different sides. So I think that Middleton fits the Philadelphia market as an owner more, if that's kind of what you're getting at. I feel like Middleton is, he fits what the Philly fan wants from their owner, a guy who wants to win, a guy who's, passionate about the team. I definitely think he fits that mold. I think the problem with Middleton is a little similar to, and it's not apples to apples, but for those who are remember back when Jeffrey Lurie first came on board with the Philadelphia Eagles, you know, it wasn't Andy Reid as the first coach. You know, you had guys like Ray Rhodes in there before Andy Reid came along, and you had some pretty bizarre quarterback decisions. You know, remember it was Bobby Hoying and Ty Detmer and all those guys. 
back in the mid, mid to late 90s, before you got McNabb and everybody else after that. So I feel like Middleton is maybe right now where Laurie was years ago, where maybe he's he's getting advice and not pulling the trigger on the right decisions, and maybe he needs to shake up who's in charge in order to help him make better decisions as an owner because I think the owner is only as good as the people he puts around him to run the baseball team. That's very possible. It is very possible. And the the one thing that I feel I can kind of understand, I'm in a weird spot because, as I stated, I do think John Middleton wants to win. And I also am a little confused because he's unwilling to go over the luxury tax. Where I do support his logic, though, if this team's not ready to win a championship, is it worth going over just to go over? I feel John Middleton is totally okay with going over the luxury tax if the team can legitimately compete. Maybe he doesn't see this roster as a legitimate team that can compete. They need a couple more pieces, and then he'd be willing to go over the luxury tax. How do you feel about that? I feel that Middleton is in a similar position of a lot of the baseball owners right now because of this 2020 covid truncated season where it's like let's cram in as many games so we can get to the postseason where the real money's at I feel like there's a lot of owners who are maybe not willing to cross that luxury threshold this year specifically because they don't want to just throw money down the toilet for a team that may or may not do anything or you can look at it the other way around though and say this is a 60 game season and they have a chance Right? I mean, you can look at it that way where, hold on a second, maybe we wouldn't have a chance with the 162. Here's a 60. Let's go out and see if we can win. Although with the way that Joe Girardi's been managing, it seems he's in that full 162 mode and he's not in that assertive 60 game mode. Yeah, it it's hard for me to judge Girardi because like I said, because of the fact that what he's been handed to work with. Kind of like what you and Mike Gill have talked about with Kapler. Like, at the end, it was hard to tell what was Kapler and what was the roster he was handed. So, uh, I'm I'm at the point where I think that the Phillies, whatever happens this year, unless they have this monumental run to the World Series, which I don't think is going to happen. I think they make the playoffs, but not the not deep playoff run. I think that the that John Middleton has to have an honest conversation about if Matt Clintac's the guy for the job. And I think that's where you really got to start making the changes is the people who are making the baseball decisions might not be in making the right decisions and giving Middleton the right advice. I think that's fair. Although he did quietly extend him and McPhail. Uh, I forget when exactly that was, what year it was, but he last quietly year. did it under the radar. Okay. It was, it was last I think year. It was last March. Okay. And then, here's another thing to factor in. It was real sneaky, I remember it. Yeah. Uh, Matt Klintak, Spencer Howard, Alec Bohm, Adam Hazy. Like, if these guys are continuing to be caught up, and if they are successful, do you then think, hold on a second, the guys he's drafting, they're working. So what do we do? Stott is another name that we can look for, although he's a couple years away. If his prospects start to hit more times than not, do we then have to take a step back on this whole fire Matt Clintac thing? Broken clock is right twice a day, Hunter. That's true, but in baseball, it, it's tough to begin with to nail them. So if you start to nail them, I feel like you got to have you got to give him some credit. Also, Pat Gillick helped the Phillies win a World Series, even though he did it with some of Ed Wade's players. You know, Ed Wade was the guy who 
drafted and the, the system built up some of those guys, but it took Pat Gillick to come in here and make it all work. So, look, we can give Clintac some credit maybe for getting the team to a certain point, but maybe he's not the guy to get them to the next level. Okay, you saw that with Ron Hextall and the Flyers. He drafted a bunch of guys that would never utilize them, and then they brought in a whole entire new system, and from there, you know, things worked. And, and to be fair, I'm not saying that Matt Klintak has hit on a lot of his picks because there have been some huge swinging misses, no doubt about it. But, you know, I'm just saying, there, you are starting to be more intrigued by the, pro, um, by the prospects than we ever have been over the last couple of seasons. And if they do end up being efficient, then I think you got to give him some credit. He's Hunter Brody. I'm Josh Henning filling in for Mike Gill here on the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Our Phillies conversation being brought to you by Matt Blackia. Matt Blackia wants to get you approved today. That's Matt Blackia on the Black Horse Pike in Egg Harbor Township. Still to come, football at four. Andrew Lecheco, we got to talk football. No football this fall for the Big Ten. They might try to play in the spring. What does that mean for the NFL draft and scouting prospects? We'll get into all that and more coming up with Andrew Checo for Football at Four, powered by the Inside the Birds podcast. Also, Sixers, who's even playing tonight at 430 versus the Suns? Well, we'll get into that coming up as well. Also, text board is open, 609-403-0973. The Get in the Ask Bros and Josh coming up next. We got some interesting ones already lined up for you here on 97.3 ESPN FM and the 97.3 ESPN mobile app, which is brought to you by First Bank of Seattle City. It's Flyers Playoff Hockey tomorrow on 97.3 ESPN and the free mobile app with Tim Saunders and Steve Coates calling all the exciting play-by-play action. He shoots! He scores! Listen to Philadelphia Flyers Playoff Hockey on your radio home of the Flyers in South Jersey. The Flyers face the Montreal Canadiens in the NHL playoffs. Game 1 coverage begins at 8 p.m. 97.3 ESPN and the free mobile app. Back on 97.3 ESPN. We are only here till 4.30 today. Sixers versus Suns. Of course, half the team isn't playing. You know, when Beaton Simmons are injured, Al Horford, Tobias Harris, they're out. So uh, you get to see everybody on Matisse Thibel's vlogs play tonight for the 76ers. And you hear all the action today on 97.3 ESPN starting at 4.30. Tom McGinnis calling all the action. Right now, we got Ask Broads and Josh Hunter Brody and I got questions. We got answers for those questions. Yes, we do. But first, the hits literally keep on coming from one MMA event to the next. They grow in excitement and anticipation. And UFC 252 is no different with two of the sport's most respected fighters stepping into the octagon this weekend. To celebrate, celebrate, DraftKings Sportsbook is offering new users the opportunity to bet $1 to win $252 when placing a bet on the big fight. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code 973 when you sign up. Also, NBA playoffs right around the corner. DraftKings is offering $10 in free bets to use in on in-game action every day of the first round of playoffs. Must be 21 or older. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. That is a huge fight this weekend, by the way. The winner of that fight is going to have the uh, the basically the crown of greatest heavyweight of all time in MMA. Oh, that's the... Uh, what? Who are the two stars fighting again? That would be uh, Stipe Miocic from Cleveland versus Daniel Cormier, originally from Louisiana, but now fights out of the Bay Area. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I saw the 
Um, I saw like the promotions for it, and I was going to ask you about it off the air, but I totally forgot until right now. Yeah, well, we got the rest of the week to talk about it, but uh, it's a, it's a huge, huge card. Some great fights on it, but uh, like I said before, I mean, if if you're looking for a marquee attraction, let me tell you something. History goes down this Saturday, and if you have a chance to maybe throw some money on it at the same time, why not? Absolutely, and I told you, look, I am new in the UFC, but I'm starting to really enjoy it and really follow it and get myself into it a bit, so that's why I wanted to get a little bit more knowledge of all these fights, because i got to learn the storylines and things of that nature, but I will be using DraftKings to put myself in a nice little how-do-you-do, and maybe I could treat the old lady to a nice lobster dinner. All right. I, I didn't all know right. she would like the lobster dinner, but good to know. Absolutely, of course. Who doesn't like a lobster dinner? <laughs> Ask Broads and Josh. You can tell us if you like a lobster dinner at 609-403-0973. Uh, we got some interesting questions. I did want to start with uh, a very unsuspecting question. So Billy Schwein from the locker room decided to interject himself into our day today. We appreciate Billy listening on his transistor radio. It's always a Fun time to see Billy pop up on the phone, you know, texting in. But uh, Billy Schwein has an issue with when Frank Close mentioned exit velocity. And Billy Schwein's contention is, who cares about exit velocity, Broads? I'm not a huge, huge, huge analytic person. I think there's value. I think it means something. And I think you should be able to utilize numbers to help you in certain situations. I just don't think that it should be used for every decision ever made. To say exit velocity doesn't mean anything, well, it shows you that the hitter has good timing on the pitcher. I mean, that's what it shows. It shows you that you're squaring up the baseball, you're getting good contact, and you're actually where you need to be in terms of timing if you have good exit velocity. And he, Billy Schwein mentions... Well, what happens if you hit it to someone? Is that good? Well, no. In in short term, if you have a good square up, if you will, and it goes right to the shortstop, yes, it's not good. It's still an out. But that shows you that the hitter is properly hitting the baseball where he needs to, and more times than not, it will be efficient. So here's my thing with exit velocity. It, like most analytics I feel like any stat has a value for educational value, right? Like, you, you can learn something about the game or a player with any measurement. But I feel like exit velocity is typically used by people that are looking for something that helps them in their side of a debate or an argument. Like, But isn't that any stat? Any stat you use, you are utilizing for a to prove a point in uh, some sort of debate. But certain stats are are more relevant than others. You know what I mean? Like it's like the person who says I want to use OPS but not on base percentage. Like w w what's the point? Like you're you're basically just trying to find a number right now that suits your argument whereas an undisputable number is you know, if you get X number of RBI in a season over 162 games, that's a pretty good measure of your productivity. You know, or you know, your batting average with men on base versus your OPS. Give me the batting average with men on base over OPS. I think certain stats just have more weight than others. I'm going to disagree a little. I just think 
I think those stats that you mentioned that you don't think have value, I think they have equal value. It's just context needs to be included as well. So if you see Reese Hoskins' OBP, you can say, well, hold on a second. Look at his OBP. He's getting on base. Well, there's no context there, right? He's not swinging the bat, and there's a lot of strikes that he's not even swinging at, and that's an issue for a guy that should be a home run hitter. So you need context with these stats that you use, but that doesn't mean that the stat stats that are used are not as impactful in a conversation. I just find that there are certain stats that seem to only be used when someone's trying to make a certain point in an argument. Like they're almost hunting certain stats because they have nothing else to use. And but that I think happened that's to any be the debate, stat. though. Like any debate, you're going to, and especially in baseball, if we're going to keep it in baseball, you're going to use stats. Like you're going to use these numbers. You're going to use anything that helps support your argument on both sides. If you think one way, you're going to use certain numbers. If you think the other way, you're going to use certain numbers. So, I don't think it's fair to say, well, exit velocity is only a stat that you'd use to support your your flawed argument. Well, no, it's any any side is using stats to support their baseball argument. True, but I find that certain stats make zero sense to me in their validity, and I'm just like... So exit velocity is one for you? That I, makes no sense? No, exit velocity makes sense to me. I just feel like it gets overused, like... I feel like there are other measures that need to be factored in as well. And I think there are some people, not you, but I think there are other people in the baseball analytics community that look at exit velocity as like some like, you know, just this great measurement of a man. Right. No, I do feel, yeah, I do feel like exit velocity is abused to an extent with people to support, hey, this guy's doing it right. Here's why I brought it up on the Powder Blue podcast with Frank Close, Jeff Mosher, and myself that you can find on 97.3 ESPN. I said, look, Reese Hoskins is really bad right now. Things are not looking good. He's not swinging the bat. But in the last couple games, if you wanted to be optimistic, he has barreled up the ball more so than he has at any point this season, and you can see that with his exit velocity. So that's why I brought it up. Do you think that that is fair or unfair to use exit velocity in that manner? I think it's fair. I think it allows you to expand a conversation that may have, you know, died previously without certain information. I think that certain measurements allow you to evaluate somebody differently than maybe previously thought. Right. Like if, if Reese Hoskins, let's say 50 games in, is batting 161. Here's a hypothetical for you. But his exit velocity is great. Well, I don't give a damn about his exit velocity if he's hitting 161. That means nothing to me. But I'm just saying now, if you wanted to be optimistic, you could say, hey, over the last three games or so, you saw exit velocity, which means for someone who's struggling like Reese Hoskins, maybe you could be optimistic, understanding he's barreling up the ball more than he ever has to this point. And I think that that is an okay time to use it. But a bad time to use it is, okay, He's hitting 161, but his exit velocity is great. At that point, it holds no substance. I And I can agree with that. I can agree with that point. Okay, uh, cool. I, I want to get to this Eagles question at 609-403-0973 because within the light of the college football season, you know, more and more of these conferences bailing on the fall season of games, I think this question is very interesting. Texter says, could the Eagles trade Jalen Hurts next year? If there's no college football season, teams might need a new quarterback. They could call the Eagles with the possibility of no college football 
Could a team opt to trade for a quarterback like Hurts instead of drafting one in 2021? I think that's an excellent question, Honor, because of the fact that when it comes to football, if you don't have enough tape on a guy to evaluate him, majority of the time, people and teams are uncomfortable with said player. Well, what if the Eagles utilize him in certain packages and they're very successful? Let's just use a, a red zone opportunity as an example. Say he's very, very effective in the red zone with a certain package and teams are very intrigued by that to the point where they call the Eagles. Do you think that he has such a unique skill set and such a crazy role in this offense that even if teams did call the Eagles, that they go, no, no, thank you. I like where we're at right now with Jalen Hurts. So my bigger question is less about the, someone wanting to call about Hurts. It's about the fact that, are you telling me that the Eagles drafted a guy and then that quickly would flip him? It depends on Carson Wentz. It, it, here's the thing. It depends because this position is different than any other. If you're not talking about a quarterback, I think you're having a different conversation. What if they're blown away by certain draft picks and you go, hold on a second. Can we do this? Should we be able to make a trade like this? Can we get acquisitions back in the draft if they send high picks for a quarterback? I think because it's the quarterback position, it's fair to look at this differently than, say, flipping a wide receiver or flipping a defensive end or something of that nature. Okay. I I can understand that. I just feel like if you're going to take this guy in the second round, you better be getting like a package of first round picks to like unload him this quickly because you don't take a guy where they do, but they don't have potentially long-term plans for him. The difference though is Carson Wentz. You have a quarterback in Carson Wentz. So, I just believe the nature of this position is what changes this conversation because it is the quarterback. And I don't think that they're going to get two first-rounders in a hypothetical for him because look what it's taking to get some of these stars out there now, right? I mean, look at the DeAndre Hopkins trade, which Bill O'Brien, you could argue, a little bit of a nightmare there. And you look at Jalen Ramsey and who was the big one that went for – who got – what was the big trade that happened for – uh, was it Seattle? What did Seattle give up for? Oh, Jamal why am I Adams. A blank? Jamal Adams. Yes, well, that was a huge package. Oh yeah, they they gave up first round pick. They gave up a player. They gave up other picks. I mean, it was you could argue they overpaid for Jamal Adams. So now listen, that's what I'm saying. If someone comes to the Eagles with a with a like a, just a disgusting as you would call it package of <laughs> picks and assets, then of course you're going to say yes and trade Hurts or whoever. But I just think that. In retrospect, I don't know if it's a good idea to trade Hurts. Now, here's a guy I would mention, according to the texture, I would mention. It was just a couple of years ago, Josh Rosen was a huge prospect, right? I mean, this guy was supposed to be one of the top prospects in the draft. He goes to an Arizona team that can't block you and me, blitzing the quarterback, and he gets destroyed in Arizona. He gets sent to Miami, another disaster. And then he's basically doesn't have a job now. He's basically sitting behind Fitzpatrick and Tua Tunga Viola. So, you know, maybe that's the guy that a team goes and calls up and says, "Listen, I got tape on this Josh Rosen guy. I know for sure that I can maybe do something with this guy instead of drafting 
some random quarterback that most people don't even know exists right now because they're not going to be a college football season. Also factor in this. I know projection doesn't matter because once you're drafted, you're drafted. But Jalen Hurts was projected to go, you know, fourth in that range, right? Fourth round. Do you sense that a team is going to say, hey, Eagles, I'll give you a first rounder for him? I highly doubt that, right? The only way I can see it happening is if it's a team that was already evaluating Hurts and their quarterback has a devastating injury. Right. It would be a desperate move more so than a, hey, I'm this intrigued with Jalen Hurts type of move. Like, for example, if the, if Dak Prescott, God forbid, has a career-ending injury, right, and the Cowboys called the Eagles and offered a just a gargantuan no package no for Jalen, you're going to say no. No, I'm saying there's no shot that the Dallas Cowboys would ever call up the oh, Philadelphia okay. Eagles to make a trade. Ah, well, you know, we've seen weirder things in Philadelphia. Have we? Of course we have. Andrew Bynum. Yesterday was Andrew Bynum Day, right? Yeah, I guess the Markel Fultz thing's pretty wacky, too. I feel like the Bynum thing tops the Markel Fultz thing because we saw Bynum win NBA championships and be on the ascension, and then he has that injury, and then he goes bowling, and then the whole world goes sideways. Bowling. It was all ruined because of bowling. That's part That's of it. incredible. I think part of it is also because Andrew Bynum's head wasn't in it either. As soon as he left the uh, the confines of the Lakers locker room, he seemed to go wonky. But, hey, it is what it is. He's Hunter Birdie. I'm Josh Eddie. Good questions today. Coming up next, we have questions for Andrew Ducheco.